0: In 1948, the English scholar C.S. Lewis published an essay entitled Difficulties in Presenting the Christian Faith to Modern Unbelievers. It was later renamed God in the Dock, partly because the original title is just too long and cumbersome, but mostly because what most people remember of it comes from one specific passage. Now, to understand this passage, you have to know that the word dock in British English does not only refer to a structure to which you might tie up a boat. A dock is also the raised platform upon which a criminal defendant stands during a trial. So to say that someone is in the dock is a way to say that that's the person on trial. Well, with that in mind, here's part of that famous passage I referred to, The ancient man, Lewis says, approaches God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. That's a very striking claim. And I think Lewis makes an interesting point, but, well, I'm not sure that he's correct in his description of ancient people. Yes, they did tend to have a more fearful attitude toward God or the gods, however they understood that. But that doesn't mean that they always chose to take the position of the accused and treat God as their judge. Sometimes they too put God on trial, or at least they tried to. It never really turns out that well when we attempt to put God on trial, does it? Uh, Just think about that ancient man that man named Job in the Old Testament. He spent a majority of the book of Job demanding that God appear before him and give an account of himself. Job wanted to put God on trial. But when God does finally show up, it turns out that the roles are quite reversed and Job finds himself in the dock. And it's not just Job. All throughout the Gospel of John, people have been trying to put Jesus in the dock, trying to put him on trial. In chapter 2, it was a group of Jews demanding that he give an account of himself after he talked about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And then in chapter 4, it was a Samaritan woman asking him how he knew what he knew and, and whether he was the Messiah. In the next chapter, a crowd is trying to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and making himself out to be equal to God. In chapter 7, some Pharisees are once again putting Jesus in the dock, this time for his comments about going to a place where he could not be followed, and so on and so forth, all throughout the gospel. Some accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. Some say he is demon-possessed. Some think he's the Messiah, while others want to execute him for blasphemy. In some ways, you could say that the whole of the Gospel of John is really just a series of repeated attempts to put Jesus in the dock, repeated attempts to force him to give an account of himself. And in chapters 18 and 19, this long series of trials finally reaches something of a crescendo when Jesus is arrested and taken first before the high priest and then before Pilate to be put quite literally on trial. And yet, if you pay attention as you read these chapters, you'll notice that Jesus isn't the only one on trial here. All of the other characters that have a role in this chapter They too are, in a sense, being put on trial. They too are being tested to see who and what they really are. For that's what a trial is, isn't it? As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, once said, a trial is just an attempt to find out the truth. When we test or try things, we're trying to find out what they're really made of. That's even true when we experience times of hardship and trial in our own lives. For, as the Archbishop put it, although we may talk about the trials of life in a way that suggests we are only thinking of irritating things we have to put up with, there remains an echo of the wider and more serious meaning of the word. If we do indeed have things we must put up with, This fact is bound up with the idea that our moral life is a process in which we shall find out truths about ourselves. And that's exactly what happens in John's account of the trial of Jesus. Through this process as Jesus is tried, truths are uncovered about who he is. But Jesus is not the only one being tried. No, his trial is a time of testing for everyone. It's a moment when we discover fundamental truths, not just about Jesus, but about everyone involved. So what are these truths? What does this trial reveal about all of those who participate? Well, in answering that question, it seems only appropriate to begin with Jesus himself. John begins chapter 18 by telling us that after Jesus had concluded his teaching and the prayer that we talked about in the last session, that he took his disciples out to a garden. And it's there in that garden that the traitor Judas brings a band of soldiers to arrest him. Of course, if you've read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, then you'll already know all of this. But John adds something that none of the other Gospels mention. Right after he mentions that Jesus and the disciples enter this garden, John makes a brief comment that that seems at first like just a rather trivial detail he's thrown in. Now Judas, he says, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Why does John mention this, that Judas also knew this garden and Jesus often took his disciples there? Well, it's because one thing that John wants to make crystal clear throughout his account of this trial is who is really proven to be in authority, who is really the one in charge. If Jesus had just taken his disciples to some random place, and then Judas managed to find them and hunt them down, well, then it would seem that Judas somehow got the drop on Jesus. But John makes it clear that that's not the case. Jesus knew Judas' plan to betray him that night. In fact, he had told Judas at dinner earlier that evening to get on with what he was planning. And then Jesus took his disciples to a place that Judas knew well just to make it clear that he wasn't trying to escape. Now, of course, you might think, well, that's a lot to read out of just one passing comment. And if it were that one stray comment, I might agree with you. But that little detail that John includes is just the beginning of a whole series of details that he'll include to show that what is being revealed about Jesus during this trial, this whole process is who has the real authority? Who is the real king? Uh, You can see it when the soldiers try to arrest Jesus. And when he reveals who he is with that important Old Testament phrase, I am he. Uh, John says that the whole band of soldiers, they draw back and fall to the ground. And then when Jesus is taken before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, He refuses to be intimidated or show the deference that the soldiers think he ought to show to the high priest. And then in Jesus' multiple exchanges with Pilate, he makes it clear who's really in charge. He refuses to answer Pilate's question directly because he refuses to be confined to Pilate's idea of what it is to be a king. And then later, when Jesus does not answer Pilate's further questioning later on, and Pilate tries to threaten him by saying, do you not know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? How does Jesus respond? You would have no authority over me at all, he says, unless it had been given to you from above. The great irony of Jesus's trial is that despite the injustice and the scorn with which he is treated, even the one who puts him to death unwittingly ends up testifying the truth about him. A pilot is of course mocking Jesus when he tells the Jewish crowd, behold your king. And then again, when he insists on putting that inscription above his head that says King of the Jews. In fact, This whole trial has really been nothing but a mockery. And yet, nevertheless, it reveals some fundamental truths about who Jesus is. But like I said, it's not just Jesus who's on trial here. Others are also being tested and tried. And the only difference is that whereas this trial shows that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, many others are shown to be exactly the opposite of what they claim. Take Jesus' Jewish opponents, for instance. Their primary accusation against Jesus is that he's guilty of blasphemy. When Pilate tells them that he finds no guilt in Jesus, they respond, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Uh, This is basically equivalent to the charge that his opponents, these Jewish opponents had leveled at him earlier in chapter 5. And then again in chapter 10 when they said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Of course, since Jesus is in fact equal to God, He can't really be charged with blasphemy. But what the trial of Jesus reveals about his opponents isn't just that they're mistaken in their their zealous attempt to, to safeguard the confession that there is only one God. No, what becomes really apparent about them is just their outright blatant hypocrisy. They don't really care about blasphemy at all. Because when Pilate tries to release Jesus and let him go, what do they say? If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And then if that's not bad enough, just a few verses later, when Pilate refers to Jesus again as their king, they say, we have no king but Caesar Uh, these Jews they say they want Jesus to be executed for blasphemy but then just minutes later they are uttering absolute blasphemy themselves by declaring their absolute loyalty not to God but to some pagan Roman emperor these Jews then are tried and they are found wanting And something similar happens if you notice with Pilate. John introduces Pilate in chapter 18. He introduces him to the scene by calling him a governor, a man of authority. It's pretty clear from what Pilate does and says that, that power and authority, that's what's most important to him. And in all of his interactions, he tries to show that he is indeed a man of authority he acts very dismissively at first toward the Jewish leaders. And then he tries to threaten Jesus by telling him he has the authority to crucify him or let him go. But it's not really true, is it? And not only does Jesus expose the falsehood of what Pilate is saying by telling him that his authority is given by God, the Jews themselves expose Pilate as someone who is really weak and subservient because when they start to talk about Caesar, seems all of a sudden like all of Pilate's attempts to, to resist their demands, all of his authority just deflate on the spot because he's been exposed. He's not really the one in charge. He doesn't get to do what he thinks he should do. He ends up doing what he's told to do. But it's not just Pilate. It's not just the Jewish crowd who were shown in the course of this trial to be something other than what they claim. If it were only them, then we as Christians might take some comfort in these chapters. Because then, you know, then it's the bad guys who get what they deserve in the end and, and the Christians come out on top. But that's not really true either. Now, Jesus himself is vindicated through this trial but not so his followers. At least not the one that's mentioned by name, the one who seems to be treated as a representative of all the others, Simon Peter. Earlier in the evening, Peter had said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And when Judas and the soldiers come and arrest Jesus, It almost seems at first like Peter may indeed be willing to to follow Jesus until the bitter end, to give up his life. Among the disciples, Peter is the only one who tries to defend Jesus against his betrayer in the garden. Now, of course, it's it's a foolish attempt, and Jesus has to correct him, but but you still, in the moment, you admire Peter's courage. And then again, when they take Jesus to the high priest, Peter is one of the only ones, in fact, he's the only one named who tries to accompany him to his trial. But then, Peter's courage, this courage that he has given voice to and said he will follow Jesus till the end, the courage that he seems to show, it all tragically falters. Peter doesn't do what he said he would do. He doesn't lay down his life for Jesus. Instead, he becomes afraid as soon as he's questioned about being with Jesus. Afraid of being questioned by a mere servant girl, no less. And he denies three times that he was even with Jesus. So you see, in the end, Jesus' trial is also Peter's trial. And instead of coming out of it as courageous, Peter is exposed as a coward. And when you first read this part of the Gospel of John, you think that Jesus is the one in the dock. He's the one who's on trial. But as we've discovered throughout this whole study, Jesus is, as John said, the light who has come into the world. And when you try to put the light on trial, what ends up happening is that you find yourself in the dock and you find your own darkness being exposed as the light shines on you. Jesus, in the end, isn't really the one on trial. We are. And it also means that when you encounter Jesus, this Jesus, you will be exposed for who you really are. That's a deeply unsettling truth. But thankfully, as we'll discuss more in our next session, thankfully, that's not the final word of John's gospel. The Jesus that we meet through this gospel doesn't just expose our hypocrisy and then cast judgment on us. For remember, as we read back in chapter 3, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus does put us on trial, but he does so not in order to condemn us but to save us. He does it so that we might be able in the long run to share in the love and the joy that He shares with the Father, what He prayed for in John 17. He does it because He wants to make us His friends.